It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast and part two of our interview with naturalist and TV presenter Nick Baker. In this episode, Nick talks at length about his rural heroes, what he would change about the countryside if he had a magic wand, and he tells us the riveting story of an encounter with a giant shark, his greatest ever wildlife experience. Nick is talking to our very own Maria Hodson. If you were a British wild animal, what would you be? Oh, British wild animal. That's difficult because all the really good ones get persecuted by humans. So, um, you know, I'd love to be, I'd love to be a golden eagle, um, Great. which is a very blokey answer, I know. But um, no, um, I think you're the first love, person who said it. Actually, so, I, I love yeah. the idea of being a golden eagle, mainly on the grounds of um, golden eagle is a long-lived bird. Of course, we, you know, I need as long a life as possible because I like the idea of, uh, of that. But also. Um, I've, I've literally uh, a few months ago, I was um, um, watching eagles up in Scotland and I watched a bird leave a nest and um, I watched it meet um, uh, its partner and they circled together. It's proper love affair because, you know, they're, they're kind of married for life and I'm a bit romantic underneath it all, although there's plenty of people in my life who would tell you otherwise. <laughs> but, um, but I like to think I am a little bit of one. My wife may disagree, but um, the point is they watching these things saw in and, and pair bond um way up so they became like specks in the in the disc and then seeing the female return to the nest and she just closed her wings and stooped just dropped out of the sky and and she did it right above our head and the nearest i mean it's it, the, the only experience that comes close um which and sadly is a man-made experience was whilst paddling in the in the uh, in the sea with my daughter off selsey bill um they were practicing the spitfire dem- um um 
flight um, displays. And a Spitfire did a loop the loop above our head. And as it dived, my daughter and I looked up and we saw, you know, we were literally looking right into the, into the propeller on the front. And it was a thrill. I have to say, it's one of the few man-made thrills I've really, that, that, that comes close. But seeing an eagle doing the same above your head is, is, is pretty full on. And the fact that, they, that they, they live in some of the wildest, most windswept, most remote and desolate, beautiful, um, romantic landscapes on Earth. Um, makes them a, a bird that I would like to be. Um, but there's lots. Of, but some probably relate me more to a grumpy badger <laughs> than to an eagle. But um, but if I if, if if fantasy is allowed to play out, I think eagle would be it. Who are your rural heroes? Rural heroes. Mm. Mm. Well, um, it's a tricky one that because um, heroes and mentors and icons. Um, uh, someone famous, I guess. Um, Gerald Durrell was sadly someone I never met. I never met Gerald when I when he was alive. Um, I just missed him. I literally just got into TV and presenting side of things. I think probably about the same year as he passed away. Um, I've okay. I've had uh, dealings with with his widow Lee, um, uh, but Gerald Durrell was the first person to tell me via his writing and his books that. Um, it's okay to want to skin a mammal and and or dissect something or or to keep something in a tank and you know I, I was fighting all this. I taught myself all my, all my trade. I mean there was no there was was no internet when I was growing up. I had a library, um, but everything else came from books and um, you know books or, or, or first hand experience and. Uh, um, yeah, Gerald Durrell was, was yeah. So the, the, there was a book called The Amateur Naturalist. Um, mm which was a Bible to me. Um, and it had a glossy sort of high quality part, the first part of the book, um, which has, you know, beautifully written uh, as with all Durrell books. It was less personal. It's more about ecology than it was about uh, family life, but mm. obviously couldn't help slip a few of the anecdotes in, which was <laughs> what make it so alive. Um, and what's missing from a lot of modern books, of course. Um, but then at the back, there's a sort of cheaper pink printed paper at the back that was full of illustrations and uh, diagrams, very practical manual for the naturalist. And, and that really got me going. And, and um, yeah, he was definitely a, um, a hero and an inspiration uh, to me. And in so much so that I, uh, many years later, I realized that the, this book hadn't been reprinted because I didn't understand why. Um, and there was nothing like it out there on the shelves. So I started a project, a book project, which was called the new, it got called the new amateur naturalist. Yeah. Um, it's still out there. I think it's now called The Complete Naturalist. It's come through various various titles over the years. But um, it's a book that kind of owes a lot to that book that inspired me. Um, and the, 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 the beautiful thing for me was uh, Lee Durrell actually um, agreed to write the foreword for it. And uh, and that was, a, that was a massive, massive, really exciting moment when she said she'd do it. So, uh, so yeah, so that's... That's my, I guess, my famous mentor. Obviously, there's all the others. I mean, um, you know, Chris Packham and Simon King were there on telly when I was a kid. So um, they they inspired me at different levels. Um, but my, you know, my, my mentors would be people like my grandfather, you know, and, and my dad to an extent, and my mom. Even though they weren't naturalists, they were open to it. So my my, my grandfather used to take me down to the beach when we went down to stay, and we we lived down in Seaford um, on the Sussex coast, and he'd take me out winkling. So we'd go out and, and catch winkles for our dinner. So we'd, we'd, we'd you know, pick up the, the, the periwinkles from the rock pools and, 
And then we'd, we'd, you know, we did a bit of foraging, basically, what you call foraging now. Um, but that's what my grandfather did, because that's what they did in the, in the war. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's wild food. It's what yeah. people did. As, as a child, my dad, used to, we, used to, we used to do rock pooling, but we did rock pooling with a purpose. We'd go out and catch as many prawns as we could, and then we'd cook them for our supper. Um, but in the process Delicious. of catching the prawns, we'd, we'd find lots of other things as well. So, so all these experiences all join up to, 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 to every single one of these people that introduced me to this stuff is a, is a mentor and a hero at, at various levels. But I think Gerald Darrell would be the one um, that, uh, that, I would, that, that I would relate most to. And then if you go back in time, Alfred Russell Wallace. If I could bring anyone back to life, um, Alfred Russell Wallace would be the person that I'd most like to meet in the whole world ever. And that's because... Um... Well, he was a working-class naturalist for a start. So in the period, you know, he was a, he was a colleague of... Well, he was a, a peer of Darwin's, or certainly a contemporary of Darwin's. Um, and um, he wasn't a society man. He wasn't a club member or anything like that. He'd, he funded his own expeditions around the world to collect specimens. In fact, the specimens paid for him to be there. So... He did this sort of a boyish dream of his, and he went off and then and accidentally came across the theory of evolution by natural selection, which he then wrote to Darwin and told him about, which annoyed Darwin immensely because Darwin had just spent 25 years of his life trying to hatch the same plan. And there's this genius naturalist who, in a, in a malarial fever, came up with the same, same idea, kind of caught him on the back for a little bit and kind of forced him to publish. Arguably, he wouldn't have published um, The Origin of the Species if it wasn't it's for um, Alfred yeah. Russell Wallace. Yeah. But the great thing about Alfred is a lot of people say that it was a, a, it was a, a dodgy relationship between him and uh, Darwin, but the reality was I think Alfred was a pretty smart guy. I don't think he wanted any of the publicity. Bear in mind, the theories at the time were so controversial, it undermined quite a lot of what everyone believed in up until that point. So, mm. um, yeah, the, the creationists were, <laughs> were not happy. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to put it mildly and I think he ducked, he ducked the issue by letting Darwin take all the flags basically and he carried on doing what he loved doing and, uh, which, which was travelling the world and, and inspiring and learning I mean he was an amazing amazing teacher but an amazing open mind a, a great curious mind and if you want a, a good rip-roaring read um, mm. that that um, is is free as well because I think you can get it on iBooks or something as a free download is uh, Alfred Russell Wallace's Malay Archipelago is one of the most rip-roaring, scientific, boy's own adventure stories ever written. And, uh, but it's all true. That's what's the great thing about it. But it also gives us a, a, an interesting viewpoint on a world that's changed an awful lot. And uh, it's quite interesting to ponder what those changes are for the better and for the worse. Great. Thank you. And if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about the British countryside, what would it be? <laughs> oh, oh, um, well, I would change the human attitude to nature. I mean, that, that would be it. I'd wave it and all the politicians would go, oh, I can see a value for, for this. Let's not, let's not milk squash the landscape as much as we are. Let's let things breathe a little. Let's stop developing. Let's live with what we've got. Let's actually try and enrich the place a little bit. But again, in the argument, we have had a magic wand. Um, I'd like to... I would like the, I'd like the original forest cover to suddenly appear again. I, I think that's what I, it would mean that everyone would have trees in their gardens. Yeah. Um, it would mean that uh, there'd be far too many trees for us all to go and then complain about them falling down and, um, and health and safety risks. That's the issue with trees. You see, you let a tree grow in, it, in, a, in a town and everyone then starts poking at it and lopping bits off and messing with it and, and stopping it doing what it needs to do, stopping it doing its wild natural thing in the interests of health and safety. You know. But if we could just tolerate trees, just tolerate them growing, if everybody in even the most crammed in urban landscape 
could have trees growing outside their doors in their garden, just outside their block of flats, whatever it is, we all immediately feel the advantage. Our heating bills, for example, would drop considerably. Our air conditioning bills would drop considerably. Um, you would have uh, suddenly a connectivity between all the wild areas and the places you live. So effectively, we'd be living in a woodland. Mm. And, and, and that's something we've, never, we've not done since we first hacked them down with our Bronze Age axes, you know. So as a consequence, I think if we suddenly put all that back, we would have to rethink how we live with it. Because I think if we're honest, somewhere inside of us, we all miss those trees. We miss that landscape that we once had. Mm. You know, we all cr- we crave a, a woodland, maybe a woodland with a, a, a light woodland with a little bit of thinning around the edges. So you've got a bit of a vista because that's a, I think it's a well-known fact that humans, if given a choice, will like to uh, live up a hill on an escarpment so they've got a view because they feel mm. safe looking out on a woodland. Yeah. I think that's it. With Or some plains somewhere, somewhere you've got trees. Open woodland, I think, is probably the, the dream scenario. So, yeah, magic wand. That's why I make all the trees grow back again. Original forest cover, straight back where it is. Sounds and that fantastic. Would, I think everything else would... Everything else would fit in then. All the combine harvesters would be stuck, so you wouldn't be able to, you know, all the intensive agriculture would have to stop, and you'd have to think of other ways of making a living. It's complete fantasy, of course. It could never happen. It would never work. But, but you yeah, have that's a magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, that magic wand would include changing everyone's attitude to the trees at the same time. How about that? Yeah, you can have that. That sounds fantastic. Okay, thank you. I'm in, yeah. Um, what's your most treasured piece of outdoor kit? Oh, that's, that's a difficult one. Uh, outdoor kits, tif- well, I can do without most of it. Um, I'm quite, you know, on a day like today, I walk about naked if necessary. Um, <laughs> but the only bit I wouldn't, I'd have to have binoculars with me, mm. or because um, they are part of my, my part of my being, really. Um, they are like I feel naked without them anyway. Um, um, or a hand lens, or both. I mean, technically, you can turn a pair of binoculars around and use them like a hand lens anyway. But I prefer to have both. So if I'm allowed um, to to uh, extend the answer to two items it'd be binoculars and a little hand loop that i can keep in my in my pocket assuming i have got clothes on (laughs) (laughs) yes you can have you can have the two and um yeah it's up up to you whether or not you keep your clothes on (laughs) very very generous yes the naked naturalist you see that (laughs) that 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 that, that would be the next book i think (laughs) i'm sure that would change humans attitudes to nature Um, what's what's been your favourite experience in the great outdoors in Britain? Well, that's an easy that's actually an easy one because it, it really made me fall in love, I guess, with with the UK again. I mean, I there's been lots of them, but I get asked the question, "What's my favourite wildlife experience?" all the time, and my favourite wildlife experience is is swimming with basking shark, a basking shark off the Lizard Peninsula. Um, wow. And bearing in mind, I've done, a, I've done quite a lot. I've been very lucky. I mean, my, in my 20 odd years of wildlife broadcasting, I guess I've traveled the world. I've, I've, um, I, you know, I've had a chance to get up close with polar bears. I've slept in a penguin colony. I've had caught the eggs of leatherback turtles as they're being laid into my hands. I've dived some of the world's best dive sites. I've, been up some of the tallest mountains and you know i've, I've seen pretty much a, a lot more of the world than a lot of people have mm. and um the best experience for me was was a british one it was there was a basking shark off the lizard peninsula which was um partly because it was an experience that everyone told me i'd never get because it's a very difficult one to predict mm. um but also it was it just knocked me for six I, I just cannot think of a more spectacular exciting adventure to ever have that you know to, to basically i started off on a kayak and i was on a kayak and this this shark was there so i, I was on a bobbing around on an open top kayak 
with this shark doing a big figure of eight loop in the water. Hmm. And it was a big female. I can't remember how long she was now, but she was a yeah, not many inches in in, in her length and, and that of a double decker bus. So she was a big old beast, wow. and she was doing these big figure of eight feeding loops. Now these are filter feeders. So they have a vast mouth, and they just Jessie just swim through the water and filter out all the goodies. Mm. And she was going backwards and forwards. And she, I sat there for ages. Didn't want to disturb her, but I sat there um, a little way off, but watching her go backwards and forwards, this enormous big fin and this tail fin thrashing at the water and propelling her along. And it was a classic day. It was a mill pond um, day off the Cornish coast, so the water was not a ripple on it. And I remember just getting brave and I thought you know what I'm going to put my mask and snorkel on and I just slipped into the water and these are insensitive fish they know if you're in the water and they, they'll as long as you like with a lot of wildlife if you don't push your luck and push the boundaries you let them sort out that that for themselves and you just give them the space things happen and this fish kind of got closer and closer and closer and I could see on the surface I could see this fin coming towards me and it was really weird primeval thing went on because even though I know this thing eats plankton, um, I had a, an early, like a lot of us, I had an early fear of dark water. I, I had big shark issues when I was a small boy learning mm. to swim, um, partly because I shouldn't have stayed up and watched. I, I caught a bit of jaws when I was a child. <laughs> yeah, shouldn't have done. yeah, me too. <laughs> and freaked myself out, basically. Um, and yeah. and I, I'm, you know, as much of that generation did. Mm. And... Um, yeah, so there I was, and suddenly it all came back to me. I'm sitting there in deep water, and I've got this big fin coming towards me, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> and then I, I, I forced myself to stick my head underwater, and then I thought, well, I should see it by now. Come on, this is the second largest fish in the world. Where on earth is it? But the visibility wasn't that good in the horizontal plane because of the plankton in the water. Otherwise, yeah. the thing wouldn't be feeding. So by definition, it was a bit murky. Mm. And then suddenly, when it was, when it was so close to me at this point, it, I was aware, so this big pink moor, this huge, great big hole appeared this great big object and it was the shark and it was swimming towards me with its mouth open and i just oh i mean i don't know what i mean i don't think i issued forth many bubbles from my snorkel but i certainly would have i had i definitely kept the snorkel in my mouth but i'm sure it was fairly loose because i was i just not me i just nothing like it to see this thing swim towards you and i know i i could see this thing i, I know i'd fit in its mouth yeah, that was the thing. I could actually wow. fit in its mouth. And I kept having to tell it, I had to repeat the mantra to myself. It feeds on plankton, it feeds on plankton, <laughs> it feeds on plankton. This thing was getting closer and closer. And it was absolutely, and then it's just ducked it down. It just dropped its nose and swam underneath me. And looking down on it, while well, it was still feeding, I'm seeing the, the current going through its gill rakers, watching them billow like satin curtains in the breeze. It was just, and also nothing prepares you for the girth of things. Length, <laughs> length is one thing, mm. but the size of these things around the middle, they are huge and, and, and peculiar as well. I've always had a love affair with, uh, with the odd and the, uh, and the ugly and the misunderstood. And this animal is certainly all of those things. Um, but it, it just thrilled me in a way that even the, the largest fish in the world, which is the white or shark, which is pretty spectacular in a similar way, just didn't do it for me, partly because it was, I mean, it was exciting, don't get me wrong, I did, I did it for me, but it wasn't the same as a basking shark. A basking shark for me, because it was local, it was a fish I've been trying to see like this for many, many years, so in, in many ways it was my bogey beast. It was the beast that had eluded me, despite all the invested time and effort. So at one point I had friends in Cornwall that would phone me and tell me where the basking sharks were, were seen off the bay, and I'd then you know, drive down or cycle down as quick as I could to get down to them, and, and inevitably I'd get there and their things had gone by the time I got there. Yeah. It, 
we even did days where we all split up and we all sat, sat on different headlands looking for the fish and my mates saw them and I didn't and I could never get to the, you know, I was always just, you know, cursed really. So have all this stuff, all that bad luck disappear in one day and me to get probably the quintessential British wildlife experience um, in one go like that was pretty, pretty amazing. So easy, it's the basking shark is the one that, that wins that particular contest, if it is a contest. Delightful stuff from Nick Baker there. And you can hear more from him in our third and final instalment of the interview, where he tackles some of the big issues facing the countryside today, looking at the growing divide between town and country, giving his views on the badger cull currently taking place in parts of rural Britain, and revealing the very worst countryside experience he's ever had. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch, please email me, FergusCollins, at editor at countryfile.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more by searching for BBC Countryfile magazine on iTunes or Acast. If you want to learn more about the British countryside, do visit our website, countryfile.com, for walks, wildlife and other wonders. Thanks so much for listening.